0: Thanks for listening to The Rest Is Politics. Sign up to The Rest Is Politics Plus. To enjoy ad free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to the rest is That's the rest is So welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Leading, and I'm absolutely delighted to be in Dublin. And I'm very happy to be sitting opposite somebody that I've known for over a quarter of a century now and who was fundamental to the delivery of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement coming up to the 25th
1: anniversary. Uh, Welcome, Bertie Ahern. Thank you very much, Alistair. Honour to be on your your programme.
0: I've got to tell you, though, Bertie, first thing I'm going to tell our listeners is the fact that Bertie is not your real name. You're like a kind of Irish Boris Johnson. <laughs> Alexander Boris de Pfeffel. Now come on, tell us uh, tell our listeners what your real name is.
1: Uh, well I I Bartholomew is, is the uh is the real name, but um I think my grandfather was, was a Bartholomew and I think my great grandfather was a Bartholomew, but none of them were ever known as Bartholomew. I don't think I was ever called that. It was Bertie from the time I was born, I think.
0: And tell us a little bit about your about your childhood and about your parents. Your parents were pretty political, weren't they?
1: yeah they they, they were um you know they weren't in the political party, but my father was a, a, an active member of the IRA. Um, the old IRA as I said back in in the 20s.
0: And what did that mean being an active member of the IRA back then?
1: It, well he, he would have been in uh, he, he was in Cork and my father and mother were both in Cork so he, he would have been in the war of independence and he was too young in 1916 but in the war of independence he, he was active and he he was jailed, he was in three or four jails mm. <laughs> um, during this time so he, he was a, he was out in active service he, he was out with his, with his Gun and um will you kill people? He, he, he rarely, rarely spoke about it. I, I, I don't know, but the, the unit he was involved with in were in the in the they were cork, so it was the heat of the battle against the Tans. And um, my mother and father used called the Tan War, mm. and um you know, they would have been certainly in the in the thick of it. And my mother, my mother was a, a staunch, a staunch Republican. She they lived in the mountains in a very rural place. And um they were forever being raided and uh they they the Tans came and they trul they, her her father um had very bad arthritis, arthritis he was he was in bed and uh, they dragged him out of the bed looking for information because where they lived was into the forest, so just on the edge of the forest. So what happened the IRA used to go out that way and hide in the forest and of course nobody could catch them then. So he didn't give the information, so they threw him over the ditch and uh they they left him for dead and t- thankfully he, he he didn't die he had enough of problems but what they did is they went out and uh they had a whole lot of geese ready for Christmas at that time people you know there were turkeys and geese for christmas, so they um the soldiers went out and shot all the geese, uh, which was their, their livelihood. So I can tell you, my, mon- my mother never forgave them. <laughs> and just, t- just tell us about the Tans then. Who, who and what were they? The Black and Tans, you know, w- what happened was they were brought over from England. We, we, we were all brought up, believing they were all taken out of jail and brought over. But I, I think there were people who were probably in trouble in England, uh, brought over to, to, to Lincoln and uh, give back up to the military.
0: And you felt that they were, as it were, your parents felt, and presumably you felt the same, that they were... Essentially, uh, like an occupying force. Totally.
1: I mean, they, they, if you take where, um, you know, my father's end would have been a bit of a richer, better land in Cork than my mother's place. And they, you know, they, they were seen totally as an occupied force coming into the most ruralest places in, in the country. And I mean, they did, they did terrible things. I mean, they burned places out and they, they killed people. And, you know, they saw this, they were a backup to the army. But, mm. you know, obviously the natives saw them as, as totally the opposite. And did
0: did you, were you ever tempted to go down
1: the IRA route? Not, not really. Like, my father moved on... Um, from, he, he, he would have always been a, you know, a United Irelander. I mean, he never changed his at- attitude and I always would have wanted to see United Ireland but certainly he went to De Valera route and, and when De Valera went into, you know, set up Fianna Fáil went to Peaceful Road. Mm. Uh, my father, you know, supported that Um, but he would have been very much against partition, very much against the land borders, we call it today and he would have been quite extreme in his views but never um, support that the the uh, sectarian attacks on civilians and bombings and that he couldn't understand that he people of that generation he he totally understood. Going into the fields and the mountains and having the gun battles and fighting it out, putting bombs in shops and cafes. He just found. He,
0: well, and what about taking out British soldiers?
1: Um, if if it was out in, in in the middle of the you know on the frontier, straightforward battle, you know, IRA guys against things that that, that was that was the way he would have fought in his day. Mm. So you know that that was the view they they, they would have had, but um, civilian targets or you know sh- uh, shooting soldiers and. Lodgings or in bed or that. that wasn't war in their views. And you mentioned
0: um, Fianna Fáil there. D- just for listeners that aren't rooted in in Irish politics, just to give us a sense of what the main part is. What's the difference really between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael? Because you're not like a left-right spectrum.
1: No, like it's I'm not Irish. left-right at all. No, what, what what happened was the the if, if you go the 1918 election, uh, Sinn Féin were the were the party. Michael Collins and, and uh, uh, De Valera and, and Arthur Griffith and all these people were all in Sinn Féin fighting for, for Irish independence. Uh, the Civil War, which or not before the Civil War of Independence, which my father was involved, they were all together. You know, fighting the British, and then there was the 1921. There was the truce and the the agreement, and then what happened? They divided on the terms of the agreement in 1921, and um, and what was the what was the basic difference between them? The the, the basic difference was really over the oath. You know, that there was the, they differed. It wasn't actually on partition, which most people make the mistake. It was actually the oath of allegiance, which they should have been able to resolve, you know, but, but, uh, they they couldn't resolve it.
0: And how would you define the difference today?
1: Well, now for years and years, it, it came on, you know, what side your parents were in the civil war. That, that, that was the difference. <laughs> and that continued on, uh, because economic policies were probably very similar. Social policies would have been different because mm. Fianna Fáil tended to be um, small farmers, small businessmen, uh, you know, blue-collar workers, as, as you, you described, Fianna Gael were the legal class, the medical class, profession class. Now, that blurred through the decades, but it, it lingered on, like Fianna Fáil support in my time you know, would have been big working class support.
0: If you, if you were British, if you were in the British system, would you be Labour?
1: Labour, yeah, no, unquestionably Labour. I mean, F- Fianna Fáil supporters would, would be Democrats in America, Labour in Britain, um, you know, so th- that was the... That was and would, the would most
0: Fine Gael people be Tories?
1: Uh, most Fine Gael people, I think probably nowadays, in the old days, it would have been far likely to be Tories, um, because the legal class and the medical classes, nowadays I'd say probably a lot of them would, would be 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 labor, but right. it, it it's amazing. But you you find a lot of them when they go to America and you know they make money. They, they tend to end up being Republicans. <laughs> Finagallers managed to go. <laughs> so there is that DNA dis- distinction. It, it's only fair to say, but in in recent times, and particularly probably in the last 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, I think it's probably harder to to see the differences between Mm. Fianna Fáil Mm. and and Fianna Gael. Do
0: you think that's been a benefit to to Sinn Féin as a political force? Massively.
1: I mean, that's that's where Fianna Fáil have lost a lot of that vote. They've lost two pockets of vote. They've lost the Republican vote, um, quite a lot of it. In people who wouldn't go near Sinn Fein once there was trouble, but now that there's peace they vote for them. And then the the more working class uh, you know, people. I mean Fianna Fáil traditionally would have been the party that had huge activists, you know, people out. And Sean mass, one of the former Taech, says said, you know, that the um the real Labour Party in, in, in Ireland was Fianna Fáil, you know, and that was mm. having to go with the Labour Party in Ireland rather than... Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, even today, now, the, the president, one of the biggest unions here is, is a member of Fianna Fáil in my local area. So, I mean, there, there, there still is that, that... That link. That
0: link. Yeah. And so, just give us a sense of, of, of
1: how much Ireland has changed in your lifetime. It's a very, very different country. It's it's a, a totally different place. Even if you go back I'm mean, nineteen seventy-one now, but if, if even if you go back, say, you know, when I, I my first real campaign working, you know, I I helped out as a kid because a school teacher in sixty-one election stood, so I was out putting up posters and climbing trees and things like that. Sixty-five, I was beginning to give out leaflets, and sixty-nine, I was doing my exams, so I did a bit. But in the first real campaign that I I took part in. It was the, to join the EEC, mm. a European Economic Unit, and we, we were a community. So we were, that was my first campaign. But if you go back 50 years, you know, that time, the industries in my area, just take my area in drunk Condra, uh, was a button factory that employed a lot of people, mainly women, but a lot of people. We we're very proud to have it there. There was a plastic, like Mac that you the wear at a football game. There was a Mac factory that employed a lot of people, And lemon sweets which implied hundreds of people, like if those jobs are all gone now all those people in those kind of things are are working in i t you know they're, they're working in financial services, you know I was in Google, which isn't too far from me last last week, in a place called Barrow Street, you know they' have five different buildings there, about eight thousand workers. And uh, eight thousand workers, maybe in the UK style, doesn't sound a lot, but in in Ireland, eight thousand is uh is enormous, mm-hmm. enormous. Um, you need to put the multiplier on. You know, can you take the population of five million, so eight thousand. And these young people are all you know good jobs, and you know even though there's a few redundancies, it's it's very small now. Mm-hmm. And and you know we we have we've nineteen the top pharmacy companies, we've pra- practically every you know. TikTok has just made new announcements and taken on a huge amount of more. You know, Microsoft, all all the tech companies are here. And what
0: about the role of the church in 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 Irish life and society?
1: It's it totally changed. It's to, totally changed. Um, you, your, your mother was very. Yeah, my my parents would have been would have been you know you know very strong uh, Catholics. Mass and every that. day. Um, my mother, my mm. my father would, would would go on on Sundays, and you know I'd still be a, a, a practicing Catholic. But I mean, my mother was a was could be a tolerant person as well. I mean, she, funny enough, the road that I was the avenue, the small avenue that I was. Uh, born into and still live quite near to it. It had a, a Protestant church, a Protestant graveyard, a rector's house, a Protestant school, because when it was built back in 1860 or something like that, it, it was a, a northern Presbyterian group that had built the place. Uh, So it had very strong, you know, uh, Church of Ireland uh, tradition in the area. So a a lot of my mother and father's friends would have been, you know, of Protestants. And a lot of the people that we would get messages for on the road were were old people that, you know, were were Protestants. So my father very much believed in that, you know, Republicanism tone thing of Catholic, Protestant and the center. Mm. Um, And some of his best friends in Cork, when he was in the Republican movement, were all, all also Protestants uh, Jagos and Gashes. so the the idea of the sectarianism of the north they, they didn't didn't mm. rub with him because it was a different republicanism and that you know that is the distinction I think to this day in, in a way with you know you can't argue that you're a true Republican and have been out killing your Protestant neighbor I mean that, 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 that was not, not the definition of republicanism you know
0: and when when did you know in yourself that you would end up being a politician yourself? Um, I I probably love campaigning,
1: didn't you? Always yeah, I love campaigning. campaigning. I like I love campaigning, and probably unlike a lot of politicians, who don't like elections. I mm. like campaign. I enjoy campaigning, and and you know, we we when you're out there, you build up a big big crew, and we, you know, we, we were in an area which was you know middle class i suppose but not not upper middle class, certainly lower middle classes, and you know i I had built up i i ran i was elected to parliament in at twenty five years of age. Uh, I'd already been in the in the party a long time, and we'd built up a big support base, young support base at the time. So, and your parents weren't disappointed that you chose that route rather than no, no, no. They were they were quite. I th- I think they were quite happy that I mm. ran. Once I was running for Fianna Fáil, if I had ran for Gael, I probably wouldn't have been thrown out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I <laughs> can see that. And as as a, so, you're very very young as a as a elected politician. Pretty quickly, building a a reputation for yourself. And I guess, if we go into Charlie Hockey, one of the most famous Irish t-shirts, and he was the guy that I got to know a bit when I was a journalist, because he was kind of up against Maggie Thatcher the whole time, and I really mean up against her as well. But how would you
1: describe him in your life? A hero? A mentor? A what? Yeah, he—he he was a, a hero for us, you know. As growing up, I mean, he—he—he he, uh, he was my local TD for a while, and then constituency boundaries. We had this awful thing of constituency boundaries change, you. And you know, how he was kind of a hero. I remember I probably met him first when I was about ten. After an election, we had a children's party and in those days we didn't have many parties you didn't have parties for your birthday or mm. maybe Christmas but there was very little money around those days but he came down to the party and had, had, had given a whole lot of sweets for the, for the party so we were all kids but we'd been out doing leaflets Could for you him. get arrested for that today? Yeah, yeah you probably would <laughs> you probably. so so I, I would have grown up in a strong supporter mm. of him and of course when the troubles in the north happened we, 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 we tended to take very much mm. his, his Side things. And,
0: and he once said of you that of all the young politicians rising, and this was a praise from him, you were the most skillful, the most devious, the most cunning.
1: Yeah, we, we, is that, is that we, a fair assessment? We, 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 we really appreciated <laughs> him saying that. <laughs> yeah, of course, that quote came from a, a certain circumstances of, of a negotiations that I was involved in uh, with another political party uh, where it looked as if it was impossible to get an agreement. We got an agreement.
0: So that was where you did a lot of training for your Good Friday Agreement days.
1: Yeah, I, I think. And, and dealing, well, most of my negotiations early on was with trade unions and mm. employers, with, mm. with, with IBEC and Congress of Trade unions and another So uh, that's where I learned to, to trade. I should jump in and say
0: that Bertie's just won a bet because we're actually in the building of IBEC, and we were <laughs> 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 and we were challenged to get a mention of IBEC, and he's just done it. So that's one nil to you. Another Charlie, Charlie McCreevy, he said of you, I know 25% of Bertie Ahern and that's 24 more than anyone else. So there's this sort of image developing of you as a bit of an enigma and the people not quite sure how to work you out, which I've never really understood. I've always seen you as being pretty transparent. But yeah. where did that reputation come from?
1: I, I think it came from negotiations that I was involved in, because I, I, you know, I was involved all the time in you know political party negotiations internally and with other parties, formation of governments, and from very earliest age, Charlie High, Albert Reynolds, you know, had me in, involved in fairly senior negotiations, and I, I, I never did it purposely, but I think just you know your your sense of of things i I wouldn't show my hand until I had to show my hand and even some of the guys negotiate with me wouldn't be quite sure which way they were being led but <laughs> so I think that's where you get the reputation from from that
0: and when you were growing up did you or when you even when you first became a politician, did you always feel that you might get to the the top?
1: No, not really. I mean, my, my intention, my interest in it. In, well, growing up, it was sport. I, I had to go at every sport. Probably mastering none, that was a problem. But I, I, I would have had everything. My sisters played tennis. I played tennis. My father loved handball and hurling, and my father came from a hurling end of Cork. It was all hurling. He thought the best game in the world was hurling. He's probably right in that. My mother was football, uh, Gaelic football, and um, I grew up in an area where soccer was very strong. Um, League of Ireland, we had our own League of Ireland. In team, Drunk Conrad, unfortunately gone now. Uh, I played a lot of school by football. I was probably a far better soccer player than I was a gaily player, but I played both up until I was 35. Mm-hmm. My older brother was involved in athletics uh, in running uh, and um, all all his life, still involved in the national stadium, St. Martin Stadium. So I was and in, 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 I used to do a lot of cross country running.
0: So did you become a politician because you had failed at sport?
1: Um I I, I take I came politician <laughs> that when I ran for so many people from sport knew me and I got elected. <laughs> I don't think it was because the banner that I had on my name. I I had been involved in in so many sporting organisations in my area. I think they all knew me. You've always been seen as a, a kind of man of the people.
0: And you're one of those guys who, I remember your famous anorak that people were always telling you, get rid of that bloody anorak and get yourself some proper clothes and, yeah. and what have you. And you're always kind of
1: in and out your local pub. And is that is that you or was that a bit of image going no, on? No, no, that was me. I mean, I was very much, I mean, I was brought up in the, in an area where, like you, you you after training you went to the to the bar, you know, and so all the guy and all the people who most of the people who canvassed with me, worked with me from a very young age were people I knew and um, you know, true, true, sport and organizations who would have had the same politics as me, and many of them wouldn't have had, but joined up to the crew. So that was very much our life. I mean, and I could never understand. I mean, I was a bit of a security nightmare for my security guys because, you know, they say well you never go to the same place, you should go to different places, and you shouldn't do this and so. <laughs> and I did all the all I did the opposite and that that's 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 the way it was, and I I couldn't have functioned. I mean, my view of you know, hanging around parliament bars and pain in the neck I and mean, you know, mm. same old stuff, same old story. So I, I'd go back to my to my local, to my local area, mm. go into places that were considered not to be the places to go. And but what did you
0: it, what did you learn from Charlie Hockey as
1: Taoiseach when you became Taoiseach yourself? I, I think um he 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 was very uh Charlie was very bright, extraordinarily bright. Um, his parents hadn't got a a lot of money. I don't. I think his father had been ill all his life. But he, um, he got first place in his chartered accountancy. He, you know, he he got through all his educational system, um, on scholarships. And uh, he he was looked down on because of that. Now afterwards, he got into all kind of troubles, but because he ended up in a huge house and things. Mm. But I think a lot of it came from that. You know, from from escaping his, real poverty from this background, well, mm. yeah. And um uh, but what I learned from me, he, he was extraordinarily driven, and he was efficient, and he'd meet everybody, meet every group Now he was could be quite abrupt, you know. I uh, could go into a meeting with him, and he, you know, he, he'd barely say hello, you know. where I'd be the, the opposite. He may be too short, or a phone call. He'd ring when I was chief whip. You get a phone call. And he said organise that so so, you know he wouldn't say good morning good evening good night what happened at a football game yesterday so it would be very much a style I I, I wouldn't have but he was very Efficiency. He went in with every meeting, knowing what was the objective. What was I doing here? You know, was was this all a load of nonsense? Mm. Or uh, so you learned that efficiency of of using your day, you know, getting out there, and meeting people. So he he was very he was very good from that point of view.
0: Remember when your book came out? And I just looked at the date. It was two thousand and nine. Yeah,
1: scary, scary. That. So long ago,
0: long ago. And I interviewed you at the at the Cheltenham Festival. And I read the book, and I was having a look at it again uh, yesterday on the flight over. And there's a small number of people. You come over as a very nice guy, and you get on with everybody and what have you. There's a small number of people and things about whom you are absolutely vicious. And they're a really interesting collection. Norman Lamont, former British Chancellor. The German Bundesbank, Oliver Cromwell, and Dana. To see it. The singer. <laughs> what, what is going on there?
1: <laughs> it's a, a bit of a cross and rage. <laughs> uh, but but I I remember L- L- Lamont and the, the the collapse of the whole ERM and the you know, the exchange rate mechanism back back in ninety two and ninety three. And he just didn't give a damn about Ireland. No, no. And, and, you know, the problems that that caused us, those, those currency problems, we were a far weaker country at that stage. We were, we were on the narrow band of the ERM. We were trying to tie in with a, you know, tie ourselves to the uh, German market, our export market. And, you know, the overnight bank rates after that collapsing were here 100%. And, you know, it really, really caused us endless, endless problems. And we didn't have big resources to fight. And the so Bundesbank the, didn't help. The Bundesbank did nothing to help us in, in, in those days. I mean, we we were pushed out we ultimately in january 1993 had to devalue now we got the, the only good thing was but i'm not giving the bundesbank the credit from from brussels we did get help insofar so far as we got a decent evaluation which meant that we only devalued once for a lot of the other countries that time had to devalue two or three mm-hmm. times which would have crucified us but it, it drove the reason i was so annoyed with them it drove them um, 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 unemployment yeah. Sky high. You must
0: have been happy when Lamont said unemployment was a price worth paying. Then,
1: yeah, well, I can tell you <laughs> now.
0: Cromwell, I, I kind of understand, but I, you know, there's a there's a bit time when you're recalling Robin Cook showing you around his office, and there's a. Is a painting of, of Cromwell and you get absolutely venomous and you say this murdering bastard what's well, he did on the wall he,
1: he asked me what did I think of Cromwell of course he was winding me up and I said a murdering bastard and I remember the civil service you all got under the table <laughs> but he also said in his memoir that I then refused to stay in the room that wasn't true oh,
0: okay. <laughs>
1: that wasn't uh, true what about
0: Danna? what did Danna do to offend you
1: uh, well look was some some of the battles we, we tried to make some of the, uh, the changes I mean, I was trying to deal with the abortion issue, and we were trying to get peace uh, between the Christian churches and the politicians, and and we'd almost got so. But Dana took up, who I got on with very well, but she took up an extreme position um, that you know abortion couldn't happen at all, you know, in any circumstances. So and that defeated the referendum. Yeah, yeah. So so then it was left to another generation to deal with. Now you
0: got into you. You mentioned uh, Charlie Hockey getting into financial troubles, and do you think that's one of the reasons why people kept going after you? Yeah, and, I, and the one thing that comes through in the book—the only time where I feel that you're really, really angry with anything—was through that whole Man Tribunal yeah, process when they were going for you.
1: I was because you know it, the the Man Tribunal was about corruption in planning, uh, and it was it was. And um, there had been quite an, an element of corruption planning. Maybe it wasn't huge, but uh, it was happening, mainly to do with land zoning in the councils. So the Man Tribunal, um, uh, I set up uh, amazingly um, uh, and gave them a lot of powers and left them off to do their job. They then later on, they did get some successes. I have to give them some credit about some of the planning issues. But then two developers um, who I had little or nothing to do with uh, came into the equation and then they came after me, which was fair enough, I suppose, to see if I got any money from these guys. And they then proceeded to make me, you know, by, by judicial orders uh, to go back to 1984. In every account that I had, which included the period where I had gone through a separation and chase everything for and then I became nearly the central figure mm. and um you know as they made millions uh, investigating me, but anyway it, it was it was a nine. What,
0: so what was the, what, give, give us a bit of the context on the sort of corruption we're talking about that they were investigating. What, about what, to, to, money what, for planning applications. Yeah, and, yeah,
1: that sort of and zone, zoning, that, that the councillors. The value of the land you're on. Yeah, they, 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 the, the councillors were rezoning land and of course land went from agriculture prices to stuff. Now they didn't find one eye to do with me in, in all of that um, and neither could they because they never got a penny from these two central figures. Um, But of course, like a lot of these tribunals, they're set up for one thing and then they go off Mm. on another tangent. And then they, even though... You know, I had forensic accountants gave, put all this stuff together and everything, but they still just kept after me. And of course, I, I became probably the teacher of your prime minister. So I became probably the, the media. This was a, a good media game. So the media tended to, to, to go on their side. But, a, it, against and but side. it also
0: emerged when you were finance minister. You didn't have a bank account. I think most people did find that a bit odd. Yeah. <laughs> no,
1: no. Well, well, what happened was I had too many bank accounts. Maybe I, I had several bank accounts, but they were all joint accounts. Uh, They were in my my wife's name and my name. Uh, And I wasn't using them because obviously I was going through a separation. That's where where the problem went. We had several bank accounts.
0: As a result of what happened then, though, you resigned from the party... Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And you've now rejoined.
1: I've rejoined. I've, I've rejoined the local area back where I'm. Back what what where, made where you leave? And what, um,
0: what's made you rejoin? Well,
1: I I think I, uh, probably it was becoming impossible. It was just so divisive within within the leadership of the party. that they, they every time they did a press conference, they were they were asked why I, I I just resigned. Some people said I, I might have been thrown out really if I didn't. Um, not too sure that would have happened. I mean, if I, I if I think if I had went and defended myself. God knows what would have happened. I didn't do better doing mm. that. I said there's no point in putting more more hassle on myself. And the the reason I continued while all the ten years I was out, I continued to help the party locally, work with the party. We did all the commemorations for 1916 in the party, So I was involved in. It. So there's no big deal. And we rejoined in my old my old buddies and I've you know I met them every month for the last ten. And, years and I, this I,
0: talk that it's about lining yourself up for a picture yeah, of the presidency.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I never brought that into it at all and it, it's just, and just the media and, and not only the media, I suppose, in public opinion said, oh, this is a big grand plan. Now, uh, I said, that issue doesn't arise, it might arise in a few years' time and then I'll have to answer the question whether I have any interest or not. I so haven't you wouldn't, you wouldn't rule it out? It. I don't rule it out, but ni- neither, I I, I ruled it, this out that I haven't done any thinking about it, whatever. I haven't talked to my kids about it, I haven't, you know, Talk to my best friends about it. We haven't had a, a meeting of a lot of my old campaign team are dead, so I can't have a meeting with them. So, and I've had I've had literally no discussion. There was a few so, of them.
0: There was a few of them there at the launch last night of your podcast. I should tell our listeners that we uh, have a rival podcaster in the studio because you've launched this rather splendid. I have to say, I shouldn't really be plugging somebody else's podcast in this uh, way, but you've done this. Um, podcast series 9 hours as i remember it talking about what happened in the making of the belfast good friday agreement and you talked to clinton and george mitchell and tony blair and lots of other people and i just wondered whether you felt the re or whether one of the part of the reasoning behind that is that you worry that the whole story is being forgotten somewhat and maybe taken for granted yeah i think you know
1: there's no you were there and i was there but but unfortunately a lot of the people that you and i got on well with and didn't get on well with over the over the period um unfortunately we're becoming a bit of a dying breed i'm mm. afraid Alistair. we we we've lost a lot and and Mo uh, Mollum, Mo Mollum, McGinnis, yeah david Irvin. david yeah and it, it's it's a grown it's a grown number and um you know and then some of the earlier people you know albert reynolds is mm. is, is is gone, so I decided what we should try and do while well. The, the rest of us were alive, um, to get to, to interview them, you know, long interviews, which we're putting out the long interview as well, because mainly for history, for historians. And it's now, it's now on the curriculum for the leave and Search, which is the, you know, the 18 year olds here and 18, 19 year olds in,
0: on the curriculum in Ireland. In Ireland.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, they weren't around, they yeah. weren't born, and a lot of their parents would have been young. At that time. Mm-hmm. So I think it, what I've tried to do is to get everybody in, in, in that was involved and Tony kindly. You know, Gay gave me a, a long interview, Bill and George Mitchell, and you know, the other key, key people mm. across all the parties of what, where they were at at that time, you know, what their, with the thinking was within their political movements and, you know, the compromises that were made. So it's mainly, I think people like you and I who have been involved throughout, we, we remember most of it, but there's a whole generation that just don't know. And they, they know about the Good Friday Women because they've been listening to Brexit every day for the last umpteen years. So they know, that is mm-hmm. there, and it's agreement, and it was meant to bring peace, and you know, it, it's it's meant to help the political progress. But they don't understand how it was all put together, and these are people who, by and large, don't know much about the the troubles as mm. as as all of us did.
0: Well, we'll take a short break, then we'll come back and educate people about the Good Friday Agreement. So welcome back to Leading with me, Alistair Campbell, talking to the former Irish Taoiseach Bertie Hearn, about the pretty momentous times of Easter 1998. When you and Tony arrived in Belfast at the start of what led to the Good Friday Agreement,
1: did you think something like that might emerge as you recall, as Tony and I have been working a distance our opposition days and, you know, we, we said we'd give it one big push, but I think it's that, you know, we started really the negotiations September 97, but as we drifted into 98, you know, it, it wasn't looking good. Mm. Um, we would have the meetings in London in January and there were people killed in the north and we had to put one party out, the UDP and then, there were more people killed and we had to put Sinn Féin out because the IRA were seen to have responsibility for that and then we came up to March we are going to America and, and that was a tricky enough period Bill Clinton was being very helpful and encouraging us to go with it and then um, you know the, the chief coordinator of it all George Mitchell said listen I'm, I'm only going to give this three more weeks so on 17th of March around 17th of March he told all the parties you know another three weeks and I'm out of here so all of a sudden, all the talking we had done and all the issues we had done, and you know, just to remind people, we're dealing with release of thousands of prisoners, how we're going to handle arms, huge amount of arms, including the IRA's Libyan arms, mm. you know, how, how we were going to reform the, the RUC into a new police force, uh, how we were going to bring in legislation. Um, demilitarized the north, the watchtowers, and all what the security. What to do? I to do. to work huge. So all of a sudden, in three weeks, we said, "Well, we've done a lot of talking about these issues. Now, can we kick them together?" Mm. And um, to answer your question, that I think we could do all that in the last few weeks. And, and no, I mm. didn't. I didn't think we could knock it together in three, three and weeks. And then,
0: in the middle of the that, that period itself, you had the additional pressure of your mum dying. Yeah. I think I've got to be honest, that was when I grew from sort of liking you to have a kind of respect that was beyond anything because of the way you handled that. I think most of us would have just, I don't know, I don't know. you went off, you dealt with your mother, you came back, you went back to the funeral. And at the same time, I should say, as I recorded in my account of the peace process, you were taking, even during that period, quite a lot of abuse, quite a lot of attack, but you just sort of Kept going,
1: yeah, yeah. Listen, we we had put so much into it for a good few years before it, and particularly that last ten months. And I I th- I think the way I looked at it, Alistair, was that if if we didn't. Complete that, and the amount of effort that Tony Blair put in. I was conscious Ireland is a very important country to us, but you know we're not a huge country, and I I knew you couldn't get a British Prime Minister to continue on to to be at this every day and meeting all kind of strange people, and you know bringing (laughs) them into your number ten, and you know it, it couldn't go on. It couldn't go on. So I was conscious that if this didn't work, it was was probably gone for. A decade mm. and maybe more. Mm. Um, and, you know, seeing what we've, I've seen now, I think it would have been gone for mm. more. Mm. I don't think we would do have th- gotten it. Do you think it. it
0: could have been done if it were not for the fact that both you and he had recently been elected and had a lot of political capital in the bank?
1: I think we had the political capital in the bank and then both of us were prepared to put in, you know, the time and the effort. And on the basis that it might not work because kind of both of us were, were being told, mm, I wonder you. You, is this is this thing impossible remember you know the, the last agreement had been 1921 uh, and, and that didn't go very well mm. um so like there was no precedent uh, of success uh, there uh, there've been plenty of precedents of failure uh, and i always say i don't take anything from the people who tried in 1974 with Sunningdale. Yeah. or 19, they they tried very hard 95 but they failed um, so what Tony and I were trying to do was to have a comprehensive, inclusive process with two governments, 10 parties representing unionists, loyalists, Republicans and nationalists, which had never been done before. And probably, and it's not for me to say, but by and large, considered by UN people and others around the world, probably one of the few that has worked mm. And uh, that, that was a tall order.
0: Of, of the main characters involved, as you say, quite a few are dead. But just give me a, very briefly, if we run through some of them, your assessment of some of the, the main people.
1: David Trimble. David Trimble was, was difficult and, and he was a difficult person a complex person but ultimately deserved his Nobel Peace Prize because at least three times in the process when we needed somebody to stand up he did it Mm. against horrendous odds in his own in his own party not to mind in the wider public John Hume John Hume unbelievable same message from 1968 three strand approach solve the problems in the north north south east west fill your sweat not your blood never changed um, always optimistic always optimistic Mm. Uh, Adams and McGuinness Adams and McGuinness was a hardball Martin you always knew where you were <laughs> if, if Martin said something you tended to, to say well that's what he meant <laughs> that's what will happen and um, but ultimately brave and Martin probably was on the hit list of, of people who were against him more than most and people sometimes forget that
0: and when he and Ian Paisley ended up as the as the Chuckle Brothers I always saw that as the kind of one of the defining moments, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the sad thing about that answer is that, you know, probably that Ian, maybe if he had been a bit better health and a bit younger had been around for a bit longer, he had great people like Peter Robinson behind him and he continued on that relationship. We were lucky enough on that. Um, but, you know, Losing Martin was a huge, a huge loss. I mean, from Martin's health, and, and that went down rapidly, in only a matter of you know three or four months. Mm. So uh, we we lost and Davy Irvine as yeah. well, brain hemorrhage, like the, they, Manon. Seamus Malan. Seamus Malan. They were um, Mo do ever joints joints and mo went into the prisons when mm-hmm. when the tide was against us I know we weren't happy that day and no it, it well everyone was worried about it yeah. which, i mean there's no no good saying it wasn't but it was one of those risks that we took. And you know mo was as tough as leather but she took the, the risk but they if you take together and i think the the reason if you look at that group we were all used of of listening to the troubles you know the thousands of people who had died it tens of thousand people were injured the, the huge amount of bombs it was horrific what was going on and, and I think we all kind of said well then you have to stretch yourself to try and find a solution mm. nowadays people you know there's been an odd incident here and there um, terrible incidents we all condemned those and everyone agrees now to condemn those but in those days it wasn't so easy mm. and um, I think it was the fact that that group of people that you've mentioned those that are dead and those that are alive were all prepared to knuckle down together and both Clinton and
0: Mitchell still with us, George Mitchell, the senator who was yeah. kind of chairing the whole thing and Clinton played an important role at various points and you spoke to both of them. So what, how would you assess their contribution?
1: Yeah, well, Clinton was very upset when George Mitchell decided to, to leave Capitol Hill um, and um, George had, had a, a young wife and a young child and he wanted to get on and make some money I think too, after been in politics all his life so he's joined up a lot of boards Uh, But he did say to Bill, if you ever need me for something, give me a call, hoping he never would. (laughs) So I think Bill Bill said, well, listen, we would go over and help those Irish for a few months. And a few years later, the poor man wasn't home. Yeah, Yeah, I think he went across the Atlantic a hundred times during the the remaining number of years. But um, he was terrific. He took dog's abuse at the start. I think you'd, you'd learn so much from him. Of, you know, you know where you get people in life. They say, "Oh, you have to be tough and you have to be aggressive, and you don't get anywhere if you mm. if you don't go in and do this, that, and the other." He was the opposite. Like he he had the patience of Jove. He he listened to everybody. You know, didn't agree with any of them, I think. But you know <laughs> that they, he he had the ability to to just handle that, and he was an extraordinary, extraordinary good guy. And he he articulates, I think the whole thing so well and he had the support of the president of the free world and that was yes. i mean that, that ultimately gave him that command and position mm. like you couldn't turn around and not see his sincerity and at the mm. same time understand that if you want to keep the president of the united states with us which we did thankfully and you know as you recall we we, we used him extensively in those mm. last few days Yes,
0: absolutely and personal relationships in politics do you think it could have happened in the way that it did if you hadn't had the, the sort of gelling that went on between you and Tony and Tony and Clinton and you and Clinton. And it, there was a sort of gelling there that, that worked. Do you think these relationships it, it, mean it, something?
1: It wouldn't have happened if, if this was left to the process and to the system uh, and even all our good people that we had with us and they were all great people that we had with us it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I mean at the end of the day it, it was that we worked together Normally in that kind of uh, negotiations, Tony and I should have been adversarials. We, you know, we should have been fighting our, our causes and lines. And, and, and that's what always went, you know, goes on all over the world. And I've been involved in a few processes since and different places. And you see why they don't work yeah. very quickly. No, we, we were lucky that we got on well together and you know, can I quickly add that that relationship wasn't just 98. I mean, Tony and I had to live with this till 207 till Mm -hmm. we really got the institutions up and running. And it was that permanent meeting you know meeting of European meetings um, several European meetings you know informal ones formal meetings being able to go back and forward between uh, between Dublin and, and, and London I don't know how many times I think I, I definitely will hold the world record of Prime Ministers that were in number 10 nobody could get near me I'd say <laughs> but I mean you so probably that,
0: went there more days than Liz trusted
1: yeah well I, eh? I, I think I was there about 50 or 60 <laughs> times so no, I yeah, did, not a bad record
0: and, and, and where do you think we are Today, so we're meeting on a day when just been a a shooting of an off-duty policer in OMA. As you say, people saying all the right things, but just, you know, a worrying sign. You've got Rishi Sunak trying to get some sort of deal over the line in relation to something that will replace Johnson's mess. And... Maybe just a feeling that, you know, we're going to have to normalize the idea that these institutions in Northern Ireland aren't up and running. They've been down and not running more than they've been up and running. So just give me your rough take on on where you see things now and whether you're optimistic, I guess.
1: Yeah, I am optimistic. But if you ask me, am I very optimistic now? But I I do think this is doable. Um, And we have a a short window of opportunity now. Don't ask me what that short means, but it's not months, that's sure. Mm. I think we probably have a few weeks, um, but no more than that. And again, you're facing on, what happens if. if if that doesn't work, I think it's gone again for a considerable period of time and, and that uh, means
0: the institutions are down the direct
1: institutions from- are down, and uh, i i I fear. I hate saying this, but I fear that the European Union will say we'll, we'll come back after the next uh, election in, in the UK and maybe the next election in Ireland. You know, so so we're gone for a period. That's why I'm optimistic because I just don't want that to happen. Mm. Um, but at the same time we desperately need the institutions up. I mean Northern Ireland uh, has a whole lot of difficulties, a whole lot of problems uh, and it, it desperately needs to, to, you know, to have people running the place day by day, even if it's not perfect.
0: You and I were at a at dinner last night with the with Ibeck and um, Deirdre Heenan, academic,
1: eminent academic from the from North, the North yeah.
0: and she said she got very emotional and she said something very very powerful. I thought she said that for all this talk now of the DUP this and the DUP that we in the North are basically collateral damage. How much do you think this is about? Has been about the Tory Party, the current problems, and also I don't remember anybody. <laughs> Back in 1998, ever suggesting that maybe one of the factors we had to think about going forward was that would the United Kingdom leave the European Union? How much of the problems we've got now do you think are the direct consequence of that?
1: Yeah, well, you're right. Nobody ever did. I don't think anyone even dreamt it not to mind say it. So you know you can't blame brexit on everything but it's certainly destabilized things for the last 6 7 years there's no doubt about that you know we all tried collectively here former leaders present leaders tried to to make those points um, in the year before the the cameron referendum and nobody really listened anyway we we collectively failed to get that true in, into the equation but all those fears have have come true and it's it's really been difficult for the last few years now we can't blame Brexit because different things brought down the institutions but the momentum that we had gained you know over the years and you know businesses doing better more exchanges between north and south east west relationships going well Irish officials British officials working together and then then it all stops and the the one that I I think really was the horror show for me that people sometimes say, were the institutions good enough in the Good Friday Agreement? was what you designed good enough? And I said, well, they were perfectly well, but what do you do when we couldn't get a British Prime Minister even to turn up to an East-West meeting for a decade? Mm. And, you know, I don't be criticising anyone, but I mean, it, it took a huge effort even to get Rishi Sunak to go to that Blackpool meet before Christmas, because I think he got it, or at least somebody got it. He was him. like the first in 10 years. First since since Gordon Brown. Mm. And and so somebody says, well, were the institutions not up to it? Well, if he couldn't even get the people to the meetings, you know. And by the way, I didn't expect the British Prime Minister to be torn up every month. You know, that that you know if we turned up once a year, it would have been enough, but not once a decade mm. and then an, an awful lot of errors. So, so that has been, you know, hugely negative. And then all the arguments, like we thought, you and I thought we're finished with the border, uh, land border and sea border. And, you know, Europe had got rid of borders. There was no borders. We would not have been talking about the sea border or the land border. Except for Brexit. Mm. I mean, and, and what has created all the difficulties? The land border, the sea border. Mm. So I'm afraid that end of it, nobody can argue that it wasn't Brexit. Um, and then what does that start? The, the argument about Irishness and Britishness. Uh, and what do we try and solve in the Good Friday Agreement that you could be Irish and British and most? Mm. So I'm afraid any fair commentator uh, has to say, that the killer blow to us this last you know 7 or 8 years has been brexit. Mm.
0: where do you think we are on uh, the possibility of uh, what you like to call a new ireland? And most commonly described as a United Ireland.
1: Yeah I, I think um, Presumably
0: you still want a United Ireland.
1: Yeah I, I, I'd like to but I'd rather call it a New Ireland because I think the idea, United Ireland is linked to my dad's time you know where it, it, it was they get out and we take over you know and that's the last thing you want now I mean the fear sometimes of, of unionist people is that Sinn Féin would come back and do what they did on them and, and you know we, that's, that's all stuff that we need to consign to the bin, not to mind history. So I'm in favour of the work going on, looking at it and examining it. Having early border polls would, would be a, a disaster and uh, it, it won't happen. Uh, I, I think really what we want to see is a sustained period of the institutions working. And um, we have to be conscious that the promise to Republicans at the time was that there would be from time to time a, bar- a border poll. Uh, but And afraid time to time has to mean when you have the institutions up and running. Um, And I think.
0: What what happens if. I mean, it's it's really not impossible. Sinn Fein won the election in the North. Yeah. And it's looking likely that that's going to happen in the Republic as well. Yeah. And Sinn Féin presumably will have to promise a border poll as part of that. Yeah I program. think they
1: will promise a border poll and there, there's nothing wrong with that but they'll they equally have to say that the preparatory work has to be completed and then when people understand what they're voting for like the problem that we've, we've learned from Brexit and the problem we've learned from Scottish referendum is that if you haven't got your preparatory work done you should save your money and not have a poll. So and, and our position is probably even more complicated because we're dealing with hundreds of years of history. So unless there's a clear question uh, put to the people with the backup um, arrangements. Like, if you were to have a border poll, you, you wouldn't pass it in the South um, uh, because people would say, well, how's that going to work? Forget about the money. The, the, so you the think, money, you're uh,
0: telling me that the Irish would maybe ask the questions that the British didn't necessarily ask in the way they should I, have done I, in the I,
1: Brexit? I, I think, you see, the problem with Brexit was that nobody had worked out what it actually meant. Like I, I remember... Um, in was it in the referendum was what? June 23rd, 2016. 16, 16, <laughs> remember that day. Um, but I remember in 2017 when Theresa May, uh, went set out the terms. It was January 2017. She set out the terms, um, of what Brexit meant. And the single market, I reckon, was going to go. She was going to say single market will be out. But when she said the customs union was out, and I recently got, got onto the research and all and I asked, could anyone find any reference that was made in anywhere? anywhere of the customs union in the campaign. They denied it. It and, would never and, happen. And, and they, 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 came, they came back and said, anytime it was ever raised, people said, well, what's that got to do with the referendum? And nobody said. And, and then all, all, all of a sudden, you know, that's what created, because as soon as that happened, um, I remember what Pascal Lame, who was head of the WTO and, and head of commissioner, he had all the time said, as soon as you create a land border, wherever it is, now unfortunately it happened to be in the island of Ireland, but wherever it is, you're going to have to deal with all these issues and he said that immediately after she made that statement Mm. and here we are six years later grappling with those yeah
0: yeah I guess there is a theory because the other great success of your time as Taoiseach was you were president of the European Union you get in the rotating presidency at the time of the biggest enlargement of the European Union (laughs) which in turn led to a lot of the problems we had with immigration from within the European Union which that led to Brexit bertie so i mean we could make the case that it's all your fault
1: oh yeah yeah but but i i tell you the one thing that the uk and and we did on the one day was in in may 2004 we opened up the borders so people could come But as you know, Alistair, in Dublin today and throughout Ireland, uh, we now have, you know, huge multinationals that have come in since then. We were the biggest exporters of software in the world. I think probably still are, even a small small country. Uh, But what's the reason for that? It's that because all of these research groups and all these companies have people from every country in the world. You go in to say, go down to Google or and any any of the big ones here, they're all around implying thousands of people, thousands of people. You go in and you'll meet Indians, you'll meet Latin Americans, you'll meet people from every country in Europe, all working together on the projects. And and that's what's made us. I mean, we, we all have the problem of immigrants coming from some place and trying to give them accommodation and the Ukrainians that that's a challenge. But I mean the pluses on the other side of it. Is amazing, and you know, in that period, um, you know, we we have, I think, our economy has, has doubled in the last ten years, but it doubled in the previous ten mm-hmm. years. So, you know, we couldn't have done that on, you know, without the European Union and what was in it. So, I I could never, I could never understand. I know that was the issue in the referendum, but you can see already you now most of the industries are looking for people, and and they're all making cases of why sh- they should be the exception. And I I think that was fairly obvious at the time, but. instead of people who should have known better, in my view, arguing the case why that wasn't a bad thing, they joined the bandwagon and and argued the case the other way. And and that was the sad thing.
0: Well, let's not ruin a wonderful hour spent together by even mentioning the word BJ. I think that's who you have in mind at that point. Bertie, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Lovely spending time with you as ever. And good luck with your podcast. And thank
1: you for appearing on... Thank you very much, and have no chance of knocking you off your number one spot. But uh, uh, I'll I'll try and do okay in <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> Thank you.